The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Eternity in the presence of God is my theme for this morning. And a couple of things struck me even as my voice was deserting me, voice that is so important for a public speaker. You learn to depend upon your voice and trust that it will uh, stay with you. When it doesn't, it's uh, very difficult, quite intimidating. I'm not known for particularly short sermons, and so eternity in the presence of God gave me quite a bit of scope this morning. (laughs) I think perhaps part of the reason is that we need to be brief. There's a lot to get through. The other thing that struck me is that perhaps there's nothing more appropriate than silence before God in his presence. We heard that yesterday. Sometimes to be quiet before the Lord, to be still and know that he is God, sometimes there's just too much noise, too many voices that can drown out the voice of God in our lives. And so perhaps it is appropriate that uh, there is some struggling with the voice this morning. I want to read to us from uh, the first epistle of John, John chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. 1 John 2, 28 to chapter 3, verse 3. So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know That he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. Now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Augustine had a great deal to say about heaven. Augustine is one of my favorite writers. And uh, in his uh, commentary on Psalm 84, he says, We shall be in a city of which, my brethren, when I speak, I find it difficult to leave off. And when we reflect upon the presence of God and think about eternity, the thought is so glorious, so wondrous. We heard James trying to articulate something of it on, uh, earlier this week. It is difficult to expound upon, it's difficult to reflect upon, because the precise nature of our eternal state isn't known to us in a great deal of detail. It's not yet been fully revealed, and because of that, we do often hold some very vain and very silly ideas about heaven. Before coming here and preparing, I did have a rather strange dream about eternity. Maybe it was the pressure of uh, preparing for this address. A dream about uh, eternity, a dream about a golden city. And when I was arriving 
in uh, glory, I was given a guided tour by an angel. If James is here, this is just a story. It's not biblical. It's not coming out of the text. It's just a dream. The throne was in the center of the city. So in my dream, the ranking of God's spokespersons was determined by how close you were to the center of the city. Beginning this tour, I immediately see saints of old, God's apostles and prophets and from both covenant eras conversing with each other and toasting marshmallows. And then moving out a little further beyond the sort of apostolic era, I found myself in Patristic Village. And there I was pointed out, there was Augustine and uh, Tertullian and there's Athanasius and pulling them in a rickshaw was Oregon. And... uh, The angel said, well, he did too much allegorization of the text, and he was a universalist as well. That's how he landed that job there. And I walked a little bit further beyond Patristic Village, and as I wandered around the corner, I saw this quaint little home, and there was the familiar long beard of John Calvin. And he was walking up his garden path, and there was hung on the little cottage there, Geneva House. And uh, Luther and his runaway bride, nun, was with him for tea together, and then Zwingli turned off on a push bike as well, leaned it against the garden fence. They went in the house together, and Erasmus took their coats, hung them in the closet, and then went out and continued painting the garden fence. And then as I walked a little further, I saw Pascal, Blaise Pascal, and a group of Jansenists. They were laughing together, and Pascal was holding forth on why the vacuum doesn't quite work the same in glory, and that he was giving out calculators as well, free ones, for everyone who was there. And then there was no mistaking a little bit further on Wesley and Whitfield, because they were still arguing about uh, predestination. And uh, they were at one another, and Jonathan Edwards comes over, not the triple jumper, the theologian, he steps in and cuffs them both around the ear, actually. And says to John, he says, well, John, clearly we we need to have a reappraisal of your sinless perfection doctrine at this point. And he says, maybe you should start by reading my freedom of the will. And here's a large philosophical dictionary to help you get through it. It's exhaustive. And then the angel nudged me and I looked up and I saw Spurgeon and I saw Finney. And they were talking together. And as we got there, uh, Finney had just finished rebuking Charles Spurgeon for consuming a glass of 1850 Chateau Lafitte. And uh, smoking his pipe far too close to the city, he said, this isn't 19th century London, if you want to do that. Head east for about half a mile, and there you'll find Narnia Lane. And in Narnia Lane, just on the left-hand side, uh, enjoying some long bottom leaf in the Middle Earth pub, you'll find Lewis and Tolkien going there if you want to do that. (laughs) And then the angel then drew my attention a little further down the road to this, this dark figure with a, wearing a gown, and I thought, I recognized that gown. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was there with a pair of binoculars, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of Westminster Chapel. I said, he was looking south away from the city. I said, well, who are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for John Stott. Uh, and and then, he, then, then the, the, the smell of curry caught my nose. I thought, I recognize that smell. And there, as I rounded the corner, was the familiar smile. This is just a dream, don't forget. The familiar smile of Ravi. And he was there with a number of classical Thomistic apologists, Craig and Geisler and Gerstner and Sproul. They were all having a curry together, enjoying chapatis. 
And I was about to go over and say, oh, pass me a chapati, would you? I want to join with you. Suddenly this, this shuttle bus pulled up and the doors opened. I said to the angel, what's happening? Where are they going? They all got onto the bus. He said, well, Van Til and Doiver just called them a taxi to bring them up a bit closer to the city there. <laughs> I moved on. And I went on and on and passed so many others. Countless numbers of saints. As we moved further and further out from the city, we got to the point where literally the city was barely in sight. Just the tops of the spires could be seen. And I said to the angel, I said, surely this is it. There's no more of God's messengers and spokespersons this far out from the city, surely. Then I heard this clip-clop behind me. I turned. It was Balaam's donkey. And so I, I gave him a carrot and uh, chewed on that carrot for a while. And I said, well, Balaam's donkey, that's it. He's the last. The donkey's the last. I looked up there and I heard this muttering. And there was a stable, <clears throat> a kind of shed. And I heard this muttering coming from the shed. I thought, what's going on? Who's in there? I went in and there was this tall, dark figure holding a shovel. And I turned and it was, it was Michael Ramsden. <laughs> but, He was mucking out the donkey's stable. Uh, I said, Michael, what are you doing here? Come back with me to my place. Come, we're way back somewhere up there. I'm sure I've got a spare room. The angel said to me, that could be difficult, you know, because Michael got the last shed. You're around the back sleeping out under the stars here. And at that point, I realized it must be a nightmare. That wasn't possible. And I, I woke up. You know, we have some very strange ideas about heaven. We have some strange ideas about eternity. We have some strange ideas about God's ranking. It's so different from our thinking, so different from the way we would think about things. And from those of you who know a little bit about theology and apologetics, some of that would have meant a bit more to you than others. But it's so easy to use a human criteria to judge divine things you know, the disciples were caught doing this on numerous points. They were caught talking about the kingdom of God and asking, who's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's going to have the seats of authority in God's presence? Who's going to sit on his right and on his left? Who's going to have the place of honor next to Christ in the city of God? Well, Jesus, hearing this, he says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In Matthew 18, when he heard this, he called a child to him, and he had him stand among them. Whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. And the first thing about eternity in the presence of God is that only the humble and the contrite even enter it. Only the humble and the contrite even get in to the presence of God. And so before we speak about the new creation and the city of God and the kingdom of heaven, it's important to know that we are entering into it. And it's the humble and the contrite who are there. And it's easy, isn't it, surrounded by such privilege as this, to become numbed, even as believers, to the message of the kingdom, even for one such as me who's charged to preach that message, by having a vain form of human assessment 
Because God doesn't assess us, of course, in terms of our status, our power, our position, our influence, our prominence, our financial reach, our clothing, our outward apparel, whether we know the right kind of people or not, don't know the right kind of people, how well we articulate our thoughts or whatever it may be. God's spectacles are somewhat different. The kingdom and presence of God is assessed by childlike humility, by a Christ-like humility. Those are the people who will have the places of rank in the kingdom of God. There will be some distinctions. We'll come on to that in just a moment, but they won't be ones that perhaps we are accustomed to here on earth. The New Testament, of course, gives us a pattern for this even in the church, in the practice of the church. It tells us that there is an appropriate pattern of how we even treat people in the church of the living God. You recall, I'm sure, James's very telling words in James 2, 1 through 9. My brothers, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. For suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes, so that you say, sit here in a good place, You say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor things in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? You dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that you bear? If you really carry out the royal law prescribed in Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You know, the New Testament does give us a different standard than to the one that we are sometimes accustomed to. And it calls upon us to recognize that in eternity in the presence of God, God's value structure might be somewhat different to the value structure of the world. And so it's with a profound sense of humility that we even begin to talk about and ask questions about the presence of God and the kingdom of heaven, and we don't lay vain earthly hope at the divine door. The eternal state is for those, first of all, who are heirs of the kingdom, who are first and foremost rich in faith. Wealthy in faith. That's the first and foremost requirement. Jesus taught us, didn't he, to pray in terms of the kingdom. When we ask about the eternal city, the kingdom of God, and we think about how that kingdom, what it's going to look like, perhaps the best place to start is not by trying to peer through the curtain, but to ask, what does the kingdom of God look like on earth now? Because we are God's children, the scripture says, now, now we are already living in the eternal presence of the king. We started. And what does that kingdom look like now? Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Although we read, no eye has seen, no ear heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those that love him. Our eternity in the presence of God is going to be the unfolding, the unveiling, the completion, the fulfillment of the divine plan. It's paradise regained. It's the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the completion, the consummation of what God is doing now among us as God's people. 
the difficulty, of course, and the tendency for us as believers is because of the amount of mystery that surrounds the whole question of the eternal state and the presence of God, the danger is that we purely abstract that kingdom from the earth now, and it becomes an abstraction in our minds, something that's totally and impenetrable, and it leads us to talk, even as evangelicals, about souls in the kingdom of God. Souls, winning souls. But in fact, of course, in the Hebrew word, it's about persons. It's holistic. We're not just going to be disembodied spirits in the kingdom, not just souls drifting around, nameless. Jesus refers to heaven as a paradise, to the place where the thief on the cross was going to be, a walled garden. It's quite a concrete image, isn't it? A garden. A lot of you, I'm sure, will love gardening. Garden seems like an awful lot of work to me at the moment. I don't really get around to doing much gardening, but a garden is somewhere where you can really get your hands dirty. It's a real place. It's this concrete reality to it. Jesus refers to heaven as that paradise, and immediately after death, we don't continue as ghosts, but as real persons, although not yet reunited with our resurrected bodies, our transformed bodies, yet our eternity in the presence of God has already begun. And that final consummation is not completely unrelated to our experience now. In kind, it's similar. Now the degree is perfected. It's perfected in degree, but in kind. The kingdom of God, the city of God is active among us now. And all of history is God's movement towards that final consummation of the kingdom of heaven. The city of God. Our final state is a covenant consummation. It's that final fulfillment of relationship, and it's seen in the scriptures as that final fulfillment of the covenant of grace. You know, our history as people began in the paradise. It began in the garden of God. That's where we began. This is where we began the journey. This is where human history was kicked off in the garden of God, and there covenant was broken, but there also covenant was made again when the promise was made that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. In heaven, we're shown, as James depicted for us in Revelation 22, in paradise, a place where the curse is removed and where God's covenant people serve him forever. And Christ's victory over sin and over death is cosmic and it's all-encompassing. Its scope is not limited. And this whole earth will be transformed Absent from the body, present with the Lord, Paul says. And that absence, the absence of some of our family and friends that we've been hearing about over this weekend are already enjoying in the presence of God. Even that is not the final consummation because they've not yet been reunited with those resurrected bodies that we are going to receive in the city of God, a place in which righteousness dwells. We have a down payment now, the scripture says. We have the spirit. We have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about death being swallowed up by life. At our death, there is a swallowing up in life. When we shuffle off this mortal coil, as it were, our lives, our death are swallowed up in a new quality of life. 
in a new degree of perfection until that final consummation of all things. In a sense, that's the statement of the doctrine of Scripture. This realization and totality of covenant life in the city of God, that is our eschatological hope. One of the most helpful people to me as I've reflected on this has been Augustine and his city of God. And he talks about these two cities. One of the best pictures I think that we can have is found there in the biblical writings of Augustine. I think he borrowed most of it from the Psalms, to be honest. And he talks about the conflict of these two cities, these two kingdoms in history, to give us an understanding of eternity in the presence of God. The glorious realization of the city of God for Augustine and also the terrible judgment against the city of rebel man. That these two cities, these two peoples, these two groups can be identified in human history, running throughout the course of history from the days of Cain and Abel right through to the present. And in a letter to a friend, he was telling his friend how he wanted to write the city of God how he had a plan to write this book about eternity and the presence of God and about the city of God in history. And he said this to his friend, there are then two loves of which one is holy, the other unclean, one turned toward the neighbor, the other centered on self, one looking to the common good, keeping in view the society of saints in heaven, the other bringing the common good under its own power, arrogantly looking to domination The two loves started among the angels, one love in the good angels, the other in the bad, and they have marked the limits of the two cities established among men under the sublime and wonderful providence of God. With these two cities intermingled to a certain extent in time, the world moves on until it will be separated at the last judgment. The one will be joined to the holy angels and being united with its king will attain eternal life. The other will be joined to the wicked angels and being united with its king will be sent into eternal fire. Concerning these two cities, I shall perhaps write at more length in another book, if the Lord is willing. Well, the Lord was willing, and Augustine produced perhaps one of the greatest works of Christian apologetics in his book, The City of God. And it's actually as he reflects on the fall of Rome in about AD 410, its causes... And he contrasts this temporal city, the the eternal city as it was called. He contrasts the temporal transitory nature of the blooming empires of men and women. The empires of man throughout history with the city of God. The secular city, if you like. And he compares and contrasts the two. Now, he doesn't identify the secular city as the state, by the way. There is not an identity between those two for Augustine. You didn't say, well, there's the horrid secular state, and then there's us, the city of God. He says, even in the church, the wheat and the tares grow together. We have a responsibility within the state, he believed, to hold public office, to influence the state, because the more the state is influenced by the city of God, the better. However, He tracked it from the time of of Abel right through to the present. And he saw the sacking of Rome by the Vandals. And even his own uh, city of Hippo in North Africa was under siege when he died. And as he reflects, though, upon the final realization of the righteous bliss for the saints, he says this, Who can measure the happiness of heaven where no evil at all can touch us, where no good will be out of reach? where life is to be one long Lord extolling God 
who will be all in all, where there will be no weariness to call for rest, no need to call for toil, no place for any energy but praise. Of this I am assured whenever I read or hear the sacred song. Blessed are they that dwell in your house, O Lord. They praise thee forever and ever. Another wonderful book, another classic of Christian literature that reflects on the eternal home the eternal state, was John Milton's book, Paradise Lost. My grandfather, in his 90s, I remember as a boy praying every day for my granddad. Somebody stopped me in the lift today and said, uh, my husband and I can't help thinking, are you Indian? Are you Anglo-Indian? You look far too good-looking to be European. Uh, and I said, well, you know, there is, we don't, it's not entirely certain whether it's North American Indian or subcontinental India. We think we're narrowing it down a bit, but there is that there in my background. Well, my grandfather never knew his father. He never, didn't know, uh, actually, an Indian man came to the door of his house. He was adopted by an American family in England. He struggled as a boy because he was in, uh, in 19th, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century England, there weren't a lot of uh, Asians and Africans, and so he never spoke about his uh, parentage. He didn't know much about it, and it was a very shameful thing in those days, particularly to be an illegitimate child. An Indian man came to the door when, on his 18th birthday and said, I come as a representative of your father. You can either have a motorbike or here's a ticket to come out and visit him. I'll give you the money for a ticket. Well, not surprised to me, he chose the motorbike at the age of 18, but he never knew his father. He was a man who was always looking for his home. He didn't have a sense of, uh, of belonging, of identity, and I think that was one of the things that kept him out of the kingdom of God for so long. For a long, long period of time, my parents would witness to him. I would pray for him on, before going to school every day, Lord, dear Lord Jesus, please make little granddad a Christian. He was little granddad. My dad's dad, who is a Dutchman, big guy, six foot, built like the proverbial truck. Uh, he was big granddad. Mum's dad was little granddad. Please make little granddad a Christian. Well, it was in his 90s when he couldn't even see to read that he listened to John Milton's Paradise Lost being read on cassette. It was listening to that that uh, he became a believer. Excuse me. The book Paradise Lost was prompted by the demise of Oliver Cromwell. For those of you who know a bit about English history, 17th century leader, reformer, he had a dream of seeing the city of God established in England, basically. He had a very post-millennial, millennial hope. Post-millennialism is not so popular today, of course, but he had an optimistic view of the future. Oliver Cromwell, in his cabinet, was a man, if his memory serves me correctly, called John Milton. Cromwell and his uh, new model army changed the face of the United Kingdom. They dealt with uh, the tyranny of the absolute power of the monarchy. It wasn't perfect, but there was real hope for justice, for peace, for righteousness in England at that time, for the common people particularly, for freedom, for new liberties, this Puritan hope. And uh, Cromwell 
Ultimately, the project of the Commonwealth failed there. And it was largely because I think the elite rule leaders uh, among the aristocracy, among the lords and so forth, in the end turned on Cromwell and actually even the common people didn't know how to deal with their newfound freedoms. They didn't want the responsibility of freedom. And in 1660, there was the restoration of Charles II. And he was a degenerate man, a profligate. And Milton was heartbroken. And it was reflecting upon what he saw as the loss of a potential reflection of the kingdom of God in England that he penned Paradise Lost. And later, of course, he was reminded by a friend that he'd only told half the story, and I think he went on to pen Paradise Regained. Shorter work. Of course, many Christians that after the demise of Cromwell, among of the Puritan persuasion, continued the exodus to America, where there was the dream of a truly independent republic under God, with liberty and justice and freedom. The great works of both of these people point us towards this, I think, concrete as opposed to nebulous idea of the kingdom. An eternal state and full realization of the kingdom of God. You know, in in Scripture, we even have, as we look at the image of the people of Israel, the children of Israel were promised a temporal geographical location as their inheritance. Canaan, the promised land, now a strip of desert. That was what they were promised. And yet in the New Testament, it's no longer Canaan, but it's the world that Paul refers to as the inheritance. The whole world, not just now an image, a picture. But nonetheless, that picture and that image was concrete. It was a place. It was tangible. It was a place where the kingdom of God could be seen among the children of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. Where justice and righteousness and holiness could be seen. Canaan foreshadowed all of that. Augustine mirroring this gives this antithesis between the two cities and the two kingdoms and the final state of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And for Augustine, you couldn't attach to one nation or to one empire or to one entity the city of God because the city of God was much bigger and more glorious and more wonderful than that. It was international. It was multinational. It was multicultural city. From every tribe, every tongue, every nation, a kingdom of priests to our God. And so he wasn't unduly perturbed by the fall of Rome, even though Rome at that point had been fairly Christianized by Theodosius and Constantine. And there were increasing Christian influences upon the empire. He was not particularly perturbed by the fall of Rome because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. For him, peace and justice, the two great aims of every human society, are realized only within the commonwealth of Christ. And so it's right here, among God's people, among us as the city of God, where there is supposed to be and there is meant to be a reflection of the kingdom of God, the commonwealth of Jesus Christ, where righteousness, peace, and justice are to be seen. He believed that Babylon could only offer, his symbol of the secular city being Babylon, could only offer a semblance of peace and justice that rests only upon a temporal and 
short-term agreement between dissident worlds that are actually in opposition to each other. They don't love one another. They've got self in mind, but they may come together to form some sort of social contract for a time so they can just work a few problems out together for mutual convenience. But that wasn't the city of God for Augustine. No, that was a, a poor and dim reflection of what God has in store for his people because it is there among God's people there is perfect submission and joyous obedience to Christ expressed in love to one another. And so Augustine showed rightly, I believe, that the fallen nature of human beings outside of Christ is to live for themselves as their own center, as their own God as independent, as autonomous, believing the delusion, he said, that you're self-created, self-determining, self-sustained. But in the presence of God, in the city of God, transformation is progressively being completed in history among God's people. Love for the triune God and one's neighbor is the goal of this new society, this new society of kings and priests, where humility grants you the best seat in the house. The Psalms, I think, give us this same antithesis everywhere. David says in Psalm 17, Rise up, O Lord, confront him, bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied and you leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake... I will be satisfied with your presence. And that word presence there literally means form or likeness. When I awake, I'll be satisfied with your likeness, with your reflection, with your form. Two types of people then the psalmist is considering. One group have this life, the desires of this life, temporal goals as everything. That's their portion, and they're satisfied with it, some of them. Their bellies are full with it, with these temporal things. That's what they pursue. That's what their desires are for. And in store for them, David says, is only more of the same, a totally self-absorbed universe. And in the end, that will be a self-absorption in eternal separation from the presence of God. That's what hell is. David says, we will see his face in righteousness. The covenant people of God will await in his likeness, satisfied in his form. For the believer then, the presence of God and the likeness of God are synonymous with each other. In God's presence, when we see him, we shall be like him. We will see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. And so already you and I as God's people are recipients of the beatific vision. That vision of God that grows ever deeper, ever stronger, ever increasing in its perfections for all eternity. Paul tells us, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces are reflecting the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. And later on in chapter 4, we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And the Psalms go on and on in numerous places about this. 
Psalm 11, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. Psalm 16, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Psalm 21, you give me him blessings forever. You cheer him with joy in your presence. Psalm 73, those who are far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge. You see then that there is the city of God, in the city of God, an unshakable connection between righteousness, joy, pleasure, and eternal life. Lastly, what is the business of heaven? You know, I have a devotional book at home called The Business of Heaven by C.S. Lewis. It sits on my side table, periodically read a bit before bed. What is the business of heaven? What are we going to be doing there, pursuing there? Eternity in the presence of God. As a child, the idea of heaven confused me a lot. The goal of heaven confused me a fair amount. You know, when when I was a small boy, I remember very distinctly wanting Christ to come very soon. Before I grew up, I remember it distinctly that I wanted Christ to come before I grew up because I should not want to frolic with lions if I was an adult. I shouldn't want to do the things that are in the child's mind. If I was grown up, I wouldn't enjoy heaven as much. That was my perspective. So I used to think, well, if Jesus comes back, you know, in the next seven or eight years, I'll still be young enough to enjoy those things that I think heaven should be about. Well, you know, the idea of frolicking with lions still holds a great deal of appeal for me, actually. I also thought, you know, wouldn't later on, wouldn't heaven be an incredibly boring place eventually? I mean, how many times can you sing the same songs over and over? I wonder sometimes at my own home church whether we are trying to usher in heaven early by singing the same vacuous songs over and over and over. I mean, what does fa-la-la-la-la-la-la mean, if you've ever come across that wonderful song of worship, actually mean? Nonetheless, I'm sure some of you know it. It's not going to be a classic, I can tell you that. Are we going to be bored somehow in heaven? Isn't there going to be some sort of wearing thin and wearing out of this place of praise? But in Scripture, we have this indication that there are related perfections in heaven where vision and contemplation. I mean, for Augustine, that was what his hope of heaven really was, the contemplation of God. But transformation and contemplation and also dominion. The original mandate given to us in the paradise of God was to rule and subdue, to have dominion first over ourselves and then over the appropriate arenas of which God, over which God gives us rule. John does tell us, as we've read, we don't know what we do know, he says. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. And from the earliest time I can remember, this has been one of the most precious verses to me in the Bible. That everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Because I think this text combines everything that it means for a human being to have true beatitude. 
you know, I'm sure you're all familiar with that famous quote of Augustine, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Well, I think this verse gives us the key to true human beatitude because first here we have the vision of God in the face of Christ. We see him. And that implicitly to me involves divine contemplation. Reflecting on, you know, it's the idea of if you take a pebble and you drop a pebble into a bottomless well, when does it hit the bottom? It never hits the bottom. There is always more to contemplate, to know. And this vision of God in the face of Christ implicitly involves intellectual fulfillment and understanding, not the understanding that God has of himself. Because I will always be a creature. That's another misunderstanding that Christians have. I am a creature. I'm made by God for God. You're a creature. You'll never have the knowledge of God as he knows himself. But we can grow for all eternity in increasing perfection in that knowledge and understanding of who God is. Second, then, there is transformation. When we see him, we'll be like him. Moral transformation that is beginning now, taking place now in our lives as we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. And that moral perfection in ever-increasing perfections will take place. Where we will increasingly be like Jesus. I remember a song as a boy. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. We used to sing this song. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory. All I ask is to be like him. And so there's moral transformation. And thirdly, there is dominion in this verse because the scripture says whoever has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. You know, the proverb says it's better to govern yourself and to govern a city. It's better to exercise dominion over yourself than to be able to rule a city. And the first task of us in the city of God is to govern ourselves, to be pure, just as he is pure. And that regency, that vice regency that we have under God begins here and it begins here. And that regency will be extended. You know, the images that we get from Jesus about the kingdom of God are about ruling cities. To the servants, some who were faithful, some who were unfaithful. He talks about one having dominion over ten cities and another over five cities. Concrete dominion. Regency, without which we're not human beings. We are vice regents and God will give us regency. The scripture here teaches us that. If you can't rule yourself, you will govern nothing. If we can't govern ourselves under God, we will govern nothing. And so praising, worship and contemplation and serving by exercising dominion where intellect and love are fulfilled by the divine community and in that community of believers, the business of heaven is carried out for the need for community is met by the triune God enfolded in this unshakable embrace of the Godhead enfolded in the unshakable sense of divine community 
for which every human being longs and seeks, for companionship. Not to be lonely, but to feel eternally secure in that home and resting place of the city of God. And for all eternity, increasing in these dynamic perfections about which I'm trying to articulate something. Where we will all be fulfilled according to our God-ordained potential. Where we have translated bodies, resurrected, incorruptible, yet but I will still be able to recognize you. I'll still be able to recognize my friends. You know, even though for a time their eyes were covered, after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples knew who he was, and he had scars in his hands and feet, and we will recognize each other in translated, glorified bodies, where the potential that you have intellectually, spiritually, physically, is what I believe heaven is going to be, where you will reach your maximum potential under God. Each of us complete in this perfect society and community, fulfilled according to our corporeal, intellectual, and spiritual potential. Because while we are one in Christ, there is no uniformity and equalitarian humanism in heaven. And here's another, I think, big misunderstanding about heaven. We often conceive of heaven as a place where all differences are annihilated, and we misunderstand that text. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, as though all distinctions will break down about our humanity, as though what God has made us as unique individuals is somehow going to disappear in heaven and we won't be who we are. Well, the two cities, therefore, is made up of communities of people. And the two cities increasingly being differentiated and recognized in history till their final consummation. Well, that final perfection will take place for you also as an individual. There will be unity in diversity and nobody will envy another. Nobody will be jealous of another, of their perfections. Because you will have your perfections also. According to the potential that God has placed into you as a unique creature made in God's image. None will want to have the role or reward of others because none will lack anything essential to perfect fulfillment in the image of Christ. And what a glorious vision it is, as Job stated it. Again, a concrete reality. In my flesh, I will see God. In my flesh. And there will be this miraculous fusion of understanding and of love which will surpass them both. And so, in that fullest reflection of who God is, of who Christ is, we will see and be enraptured by that vision and the novelty of heaven. As I love what Ravi talks about in terms of the perpetual novelty of heaven will never fade, will never pass. Heaven is an active and loving mutual embrace forever between creator and creature, to see, to know, to love, to serve, and to praise forever. Augustine put it like this, please... Hear me carefully now as I just quote these words from Augustine. I think they're so powerful. But faith gives way to sight, which we shall see. And hope gives way to bliss itself, which we are going to arrive at, while charity, love, will actually grow when these other two fade out. After all, if we love by believing what we cannot yet see, how much more will we do so when we have begun to see it? And if we love by hoping for it, what we have not yet attained to, how much more when we have attained it? 
This indeed is the difference between temporal and eternal things. That something temporal is loved more before it is possessed, but loses its appeal when it comes along. You know, like the car you thought would bring that fulfillment and it's boring before the oil needs a change, the new outfit that you've bought and you think it'll give you that extra sense of spark and after wearing it a couple of times it's boring and dull again. This is because it cannot satisfy the soul whose true and certain abode is eternity. But anything eternal is loved more fervently when acquired than when just desired. This is because while you are desiring it, you cannot think better of it than it really is. So that it disappoints you when you find it does not come up to your expectations. On the contrary, however great your estimate of it while you are on your way to it, you find it exceeded when you eventually attain to it. What a marvelous distinction between the temporal and the eternal. Put another way, I think probably as LT would probably put it, potentiality and actuality come together as one. That which we have the potential to know and experience and what is actually our experience in heaven. Here there is a great disparity and that's what makes us groan. That's what makes us long for heaven to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, longing to be clothed with that glory. And we long for it because potentiality and actuality are not one, but they're in glory. They will be one. Before Adam, before the curse came upon Adam, he worked. He exercised dominion. He tended the garden of God. Work and rest were not polar opposites. You know, those of us who think that heaven is going to be one eternal retirement because we've longed for retirement here are also mistaken. Because we were made for work. We were made to do things, to exercise that dominion. But in heaven, work and rest go together. Adam was not, prior to the curse, exhausted and demoralized and wearied by his work. Toil and strife and trouble came in after the curse. But scripture tells us really God works and rests and we rest in his perfect work. And we enter his Sabbath rest. And we shall enter it. We find it equally hard to conceive and I'm drawing my thoughts right now to a conclusion otherwise we're going to think that we are passing into eternity as we speak here. We find it equally hard to conceive of community in heaven and service because of a false notion of equality and uniformity. If everybody is utterly equal in heaven, then we don't need other people. We don't need others. If you have all the resources and talents of all people, why should you need anyone? We need each other here because we're different, because God has given us different talents, different abilities, different gifts, different perfections, different resources. I've got a guy building an addition on my house at the moment, and, and uh, I pleaded with Jenny also to allow me to have him install a solid maple desk in my study, and she permitted it. You know, I can't do the carpentry that he can do. If I tried to stick an addition on my house or cut the cabinets for my study, it would be a disaster. A total disaster. Yet, you know, he is so fulfilled in that job as a carpenter. He loves that job. He doesn't want to be me. He doesn't want to be a Christian apologist. I don't want to be him. I can't bang a nail in straight. In heaven, 
There won't be equality in terms of uniformity. But we give and receive service here on earth, and that's why we need each other. That's why there is interdependence with one another. We don't stand alone. Community is necessary. Equalitarian humanism rips apart the fabric of society. It's doing it in Canada today. Because we say today that a single mom is just as good as a two-parent family, and a gay couple can have a family just as much as anybody else, and it's just as good. Equalitarian nonsense. It isn't as good. We need each other because God has built diversity and interdependence into us as a human community, as the city of God, and that will not change in heaven. There will still be interdependence. You will not have all the resources of everyone. I still won't be able to put the lyrics together of a Ravi. I won't be able to write like a C.S. Lewis. According to my potential, I would be able to express myself. And that will have its uniquenesses. But because of our fallen condition, even when we're saved and born again, we are prone to seek illegitimate dominion over others and we permit selfish ambition and vain conceit. And rather than seeking mutual accountability and community, inevitably division and disharmony result. And hell is a place of perfect disharmony. The perfection of disharmony, of disunity, of self-wills, of dissonant wills their potential is going to be perfected also because if we cannot serve god we cannot serve others if we cannot serve our neighbor we cannot serve god if we can't serve god we won't serve our neighbor sinful man in pretended self-sufficiency serves neither god nor man and is finally served by none and he's given what he desires but the covenant joys of heaven are beyond human articulation indulge me with one more quote from augustine God will be the source of every satisfaction more than any heart can rightly crave, more than life and health and food and wealth, glory and honor, peace and every good. So the God, as St. Paul said, may be all in all. He will be the consummation of all our desiring, the object of our unending vision, of our unlessening love, of our unwearying praise. And in this gift of vision, this response of love, this pian of praise, all alike will share as all will share in everlasting life. Let me conclude with a final example from The Lord of the Rings. I hope most of you have seen the films The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's marvelous work. And he puts some wonderful words into the mouths of some of the characters in The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, who is actually a wizard in the story, but he's essentially a prophet. He's a prophetic figure in Tolkien. He puts into the mouth of Gandalf... Something about the journey beyond this life. There are, he is with one of the hobbits. The, uh, it looks as though the city is lost. It looks as though Gondor is lost, the white city, the city of God, essentially. It looks as though it's all lost. And he's with one of the hobbits, and the hobbit is fearing death, and he's saying, I'm, I'm afraid of death. I don't want to die. I don't want this to be the end. And Gandalf says, the end? The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. White shores and beyond. The far green country and to a swift sunrise. What sort of a kingdom are we inheriting and how are we to respond as God's people today? 
Scripture tells us, instead you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. No longer crying out for vengeance, but offering forgiveness and salvation and redemption. Since we are receiving a kingdom, says the writer of Hebrews, that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So John says, so now then, little children, remain in him, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed at his coming. So that we may have boldness and not be ashamed at his coming, like soldiers. Do you know, when Christ comes, imagine the myriads of angels, the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, the just fathers and saints of old made perfect, the great cloud of witnesses. Do you want to be bold and unashamed on that day? So that you feel like you can join with them in song and worship? I do. Because we fought the good fight and remained in him and offered ourselves as sacrifices, living sacrifices to God on the battlefield of the city of God. Theoden, in the Lord of the Rings, king of Rohan, was taken captive by Saruman. He was possessed essentially of an evil spirit. He's delivered of that evil. He's failed as a king up until then. But then in this newfound zeal and righteousness for the city of God, he goes into various battles that finally result in the deliverance of the white city, Gondor, the city of God. But he is mortally wounded in that final battle. And he's lying under his horse and his daughter comes over to him, looks in his eyes, and he says this, I go to my fathers in whose mighty company I shall not now feel ashamed. I want to carry that torch and that sword of the word of God and to remain in Christ so that when he appears, I can join my fathers in whose mighty company I need not be ashamed either. And I hope that's your prayer today, that in the new Jerusalem, the martyrs of the golden city amongst them, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know this. When we see him, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.